Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan Whitmer. I am the associate pastor here at Mount Calvary Church, and it's my pleasure this morning to continue our series in uh, the book of John. We're going to finish up the end of chapter 3, but before we do that, how about my band? How about my, how about my kids playing? So, so uh, I am so excited to see uh, them have opportunities to use their gifts and abilities in ministry, and it's so cool for our little kiddos to be over here and see some of their brothers and sisters up there playing and, and encourages them that they can use their gifts and abilities in ministry. And so just a reminder, students, we do have the well tonight at 545, so parents, you can drop them off. 545 at the Youth Center, and come on down here for the uh, Thanksgiving Eve sir, uh, Thanksgiving service. It's not Eve. Uh, uh, it's Sunday, not Wednesday. So, uh, uh, but, uh, but we'd love to have you tonight. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3, and we're going to focus on the end of the book of John uh, chapter 3 here, the end of this chapter. And, uh, and this morning, we're going to look at just a few things that, uh, that's happening here, the details of the situation a discussion among John's uh, disciples, and then this amazing declaration that John makes. And so we're going to start at verse 22, and let's just pause for prayer before we get started. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather here this morning. We thank you for a warm building that we can come inside, and we're thankful for the freedom that we have in this country where we can, uh, we can come together and we can worship you. And Father, our heart's desire through all of this morning's service is that you would be lifted up, that you would uh, take the, the, uh, the spotlight, that you would be prominent, and, and that we would hear from you, and that you would encourage us and change us to be more like you. So Father, give me your words to speak this morning. May, uh, may you be exalted and magnified in your name. Amen. So if your Bibles turn to John 3.22, we're going to look at a few uh, verses here to start. And it says, uh, verse 22, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. And John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because the water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison." And so we start off this passage, and we see some details of the situation that's happening. Uh, John starts off, the, the Apostle John starts off and says, after this, which helps us ask the question, after what? Well, we've just been talking about it, right? As we've been going through the book of John, after Jesus has gotten to Jerusalem for the Passover, after he's gone to the temple and he's cleared and cleansed the temple, after he's had this amazing conversation with Nicodemus about, about spiritual things, about how he must be born again. After all of these things, we find ourselves here uh, right now. It says, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. So we see, after all these things that happened there in Jerusalem, they left Jerusalem. They went to the surrounding country. And, and Jesus was, was with his disciples. And it says, he remained there with them. And was baptizing. Jesus was spending some quality time with his, with his disciples. He, he was bringing them together, getting away from the crowd, and he was to invest in their lives. And, and it's probably a few months that he's here with his disciples. But we see that word, word gets out where Jesus is, and the crowds start to follow, right? And so the crowds follow, and, and they must re, be listening to Jesus and realize that they're sinners in need of a Savior. And they put their faith and trust in Jesus, and they're baptized. And they're baptized. And so while this is happening, in the next verse, we learn a little bit about John. 
John was also baptized at Anon near Salem because the water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized. And so while Jesus is in uh, Judea, John is south in Samaria. And he's continuing on in his ministry, right? He's continuing pointing people to the Savior, telling them about Jesus. And, and people are coming to him, and he is baptizing them. And, and so physically, we see Jesus and John, they're, they're, they're divided physically in ministry. But philosophically, they're, they're united in mission. They're, they're, they're telling everyone about who Jesus is and how he's the Savior and how he's the hope for them. And, and so they are, they are united in their ministry. And then verse 24 just gives us a, a little kind of time, time marker that this is before John was thrown in prison. We learn in Luke chapter 3 that Herod threw John in prison because he was rebuking Herod for taking his brother's wife, Herodias, as his own wife. And so this was before that has happened. And so that's kind of the details of the situation, kind of sets the scene of, of where we're at and what is happening here. And then in verse 25, we see a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And so here we see there is some confusion. There's some confusion going on right now. An unnamed Jew and some of John's disciples, they get into this dispute, this argument about purification. And we're not really sure maybe what exactly that argument is. What, what, what did it have to do with uh, purification? But as I was looking, as I was studying, most people think it was over, over baptism. And which is more effective? Which is more, you know, more significant? Was it John's baptism or was it Jesus' bat- baptism? And so there's this confusion. Hey, which is greater? Which is better? Like, I was baptized by John, but, but should I be baptized by Jesus? Is his better than mine? And so there's this confusion, and, and they're trying to figure out what is going on here. The problem was two groups were publicly performing baptisms, and they were, and they were wondering which one is superior. Which one is better? Is it John's or is it Jesus? And it's interesting, just a few verses later in, in John 4, 2, it tells us that Jesus never actually physically baptized anybody. His disciples were the ones that were baptizing. But still they were wondering, like, which is greater? Is it John's baptism or is it the one that Jesus' disciples were doing? Which one is better? And so they come to John. In their confusion, they come to John for some answers. They're like, you know, help us solve this, this, this problem. Help us understand what exactly is going, going on here. And so they came to John and they said to him in verse 26, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to him you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So in their conflict, they want some answers. So they go to their teacher they go to this, this guy that they, they've followed for, for a while now, and they call him rabbi. That shows how much they loved, and they honored, and they respected their teacher. And it's interesting that this is the only place in the Gospels where this word, this title, is used for anyone else besides Jesus. And so this shows they had this high view or high opinion of John. And they say, he who was with you across the Jordan, to him you bore witness, I mean, they're so confused, and, and, and they're wondering, like, I think ours is better. And, like, they won't even mention Jesus' name. They're like, hey, remember the guy? Remember the guy that came to you at the Jordan? Uh, well, is his better than yours? So they won't even say his name. They just describe the situation when Jesus came to John the Baptist at the Jordan. 
And so, and so they, they wouldn't even say his name. And they say, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Clearly, their confusion has led to this emotional exaggeration, right? All have gone to him. Have you ever had a conversation with someone with maybe it's your kids or something like that, and they use the word like all and every and no one and everyone, and it's just like these, it's, it's like these, all these big, big words, and, and it's, it's emotional, and they're exaggerating because you know that that's not true. Like, not everyone is getting an Xbox One for Christmas. Uh, not everyone's getting a Nintendo Switch for Christmas, right? Uh, but to them, everybody is, and they're trying to win the argument, right? And so they come to John, they're emotional, they're confused, and they say, everyone is going to, to him. Even though just a few verses before, we, we, were, we were told that, hey, John's in Samaria, and there are people going to him. But to his disciples, no, they're confused, they're, 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 they're unsure, they're like, uh, they're emotional, and they say everyone is going to Jesus. And their confusion, it led to conflict. It led to competition with Jesus. It's hard to understand why John's followers were confused. I mean, it really is. I mean, he was pretty clear all throughout his ministry. In John 1, 24 to 37, he clearly communicates that Jesus was God's chosen one that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He, he freely told anyone and everybody that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Savior. He always was pointing to Jesus, never elevating himself. And yet it seems that most or the most influential of John's followers, they didn't get the message. They were confused. They, 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 didn't, they didn't understand And so not only were John the Baptist's disciples protective of John's reputation, I think they were also resentful. I think they were also resentful because they realized. They realized that Jesus and his crowds were growing and their crowds were shrinking. They realized that they would no longer be in the main stage, be in the spotlight, because their ministry is is diminishing and Jesus is growing. And so I think there's some resentment in in their hearts, and and that leads to some of this confusion because they realize that they're no longer going to have as an important role or a place of prominence like they did before. His zealous followers could see the handwriting on the wall. Jesus' influence and popularity was growing, and John and theirs was shrinking. And they're confused. They don't understand. And there's some conflict, there's some tension between them and Jesus. There's this competition So they came to John for some answers. They came to John looking for some answers. And John answers them, and he answers them in in an amazing way. These these next few verses are such amazing verses. John makes this declaration. He brings some clarity and some resolution to their confusion and their conflict. And he does this by clearly communicating three important things that I think we need to see this morning. The first thing he communicates to them is a principle for life. Look at verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John starts off and he recognizes that everything that he and we have is a gift of God. Everything that he and we have is a gift of God. He viewed his life and ministry as a gift from God. It was a privilege to serve his Savior. 
It was a gift. It was something that, that God blessed him with, that he entrusted him with. Something that he didn't earn, something that he wasn't entitled to. He didn't build it, but God blessed him with it. He didn't deserve it, but was dedicated to it. He wasn't in control of it, but he was content to trust in Jesus that he knew what he was doing. And in the midst of the confusion and the conflict, John pauses and he tells his followers, count your blessings. Count your blessings. God is the giver of all good things. Everything that you have comes from God. Wait a minute. Don't compare. Don't compare yourself to to others. Just take a moment, pause, and count your blessings. Realize the gifts that God has given you, the good gifts that God has given you. He simply says, God is the one who gives gifts, and he gives good gifts. He gives good gifts. Christmas is coming, right? It's hard to believe. This morning, it really kind of ushered us into that mood, right? Snow outside, and so uh, uh, we're getting ready for Christmas. And so uh, probably uh, some of you haven't started your Christmas shopping. Some are finished. But uh, wherever you are in that spectrum, Christmas is coming. And I don't know if you've ever seen Jimmy Kimmel's uh, one bit that he does, but I, give, I gave my, my, my kids a terrible Christmas present YouTube challenge. Uh, he tells parents, or he encourages parents to, to give their kids terrible Christmas gifts and then video record that. On Christmas morning, video record. And, and these parents, look on YouTube, it's, it's pretty funny stuff. These parents are really creative, and they put together some horrible, horrible Christmas gifts. And they got the camera rolling, and their kids open it, and there are tears, and there is anger, and there is crying and wailing and confusion. And all these people do this so that they can get a good video, just good enough to get it on his late night talk show host. They give give their kids terrible gifts. But the reality is, if we're really honest, don't sometimes we think that God doesn't give us good gifts? I mean, let's be honest. Don't we sometimes, don't we get upset with God because he doesn't answer our prayer the way that we want him to? He doesn't give us what we think we need or what what we think we should have. So we get upset with God. We get upset with God because, God, you haven't given me what I need. You haven't given me what I want, and we don't recognize that God knows exactly what we want. He's the giver of all good things, and and he loves us and gives gives us those things. In those times where we're disappointed with God, we need to readjust our attitude, right? And we need to remember John's words here in John 3, 27, that that God is the giver of all good gifts, that everything that one gets comes from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. A person cannot receive even one thing. Even one thing. Everything that God's blessed us with, everything that we have, we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. God graciously gave it. He gave it to us. He is the giver of all good things. And John, in the midst of his disciples' confusion and conflict, he pauses and he says, count your blessings. You need to recognize that God is a good gift giver. God is a sovereign giver, and we, like John, need to be grateful receivers. And so the principle for life for us here today is recognize everything we have is a gift from God. 
He is the giver of all good things and gives us everything for our good. That's a principle that we need to adopt in our life. It's a principle we need to believe. It's a principle we need to live out. And that makes us grateful. And that makes us, that makes us more content with what we have because we know God is in control. He loves us. He knows what we need and he gives it to us. So we don't need to worry about what we have or what somebody else has. We just need to be thankful for what God gives. God is the giver of all good things. And so that's a, a principle for life. But he goes on and he gives a life purpose. And in verse 28, John goes on and says, You yourself bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Kind of echoes John 1.20 that we talked about before, where John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And while John's disciples, they were confused about John's role and about Jesus' role, John had complete clarity. He had complete clarity. He knew from, from very beginning what his life purpose was. He was not the Christ. He was not the show. He was not the Savior. He was just the one preparing the way, telling other people, pointing to him. He consistently and communicated that so no one would be confused. In Matthew 3.3, he said that. In Mark 1.3, he said that. In Luke 1.17, he said that. In Luke 1.76, he said that. In Luke 4 through 6, he said that. In John 1.20-23, he said that. John was very clear who he was and who Jesus was. And he had no problem telling anyone and everybody exactly that. Over and over, he clearly and, communi- clearly and consistently said, I am not the anointed one. I'm the announcing one. I'm not the deliverer. I'm the declarer. I'm not the savior. I'm the servant. And he said that over and over with his words and with his actions. One of our students here at Mount Calvary Church, Jack Hilsher, writes a blog. Jack's a guy of very few words. Uh, but he's a great writer. And, uh, and, and he's been blogging and writing of the things that, uh, that God's been teaching him as he's uh, reading his word. And, and so I told him a few weeks ago, hey, I'm, I'm preaching on, on John 3 and John the Baptist. Would you read that? Would you? Uh, and, and just think about that and, and write something for that. He's a really, really good writer. I encourage you to follow him online. But this is what Jack wrote. John's purpose was to, to pave the way for the Messiah. And he didn't care a bit about his image in the process. Some people refer to John as the preparer. In John 1, Jewish religious leaders sent by the Pharisees asked John if he was the Messiah. John could have said yes and gotten the Messiah treatment. Yet he immediately denied it, for he knew his place. John was humble enough to know where he stood before the Messiah. John was more focused on the kingdom of God than his own personal status. He was more focused on the kingdom of God than his own personal status. John understood God's plan and purpose for his life, and it brought him joy, not jealousy. And we see that in the next verse, in verse 29, when, when, when John tells this story about the friend of the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, I've had the privilege of officiating a number of weddings, and I do my pastor thing, right? You meet with the couples, and you have premarital counseling. 
You help them plan the service, and then you plan your remarks for what you're going to say on that big day. And a few times, I've showed up at a wedding, and, and much to my surprise, I've become the unofficial wedding coordinator. Like, I've had more responsibilities than I thought I was going to have. And so, and, and I'm kind of shaking my head, but like, nobody's going to do it, so somebody has to. And so I, I do my best to fulfill those roles so that, hey, this day is a special day. It's memorable. Like, I don't want them to remember, like, hey, this pastor did our wedding, and it was horrible because he didn't have all his details together and everything like that. So, so I, I try to put, do my best to fulfill those roles. And here John is talking about another person who has a lot of roles when it comes to the Jewish wedding. And that's the friend of the bridegroom. And so I was reading a little bit about what does this friend of the bridegroom do? And here's what what he does. He was kind of like the best man in the Jewish wedding, except he had a lot more things to do. The friend of the bridegroom acted as, as a liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took and delivered the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together. And he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. And when he heard the bridegroom's voice, he let him in and went away rejoicing, for his task was complete and the lovers were together. You say, why does John tell this story right here? Because John has a really clear picture of who he is. Jesus is the bridegroom. And John is the friend of the bridegroom. John's the friend of the bridegroom. John knew his life's role, and he didn't complain about it. He didn't compare himself to other people. He celebrated that God entrusted him with this opportunity. And in that, John found freedom because his faithfulness, it wasn't measured. It wasn't measured by comparing himself to other people like Jesus. But it was, it was his faithfulness was measured by fulfilling the role that God gave him to play. And so John found freedom in that, and he celebrated. There was joy in that. And in verse 29, you, you see the rejoice and joy is used uh, a few times in that verse. So John wasn't jealous like his disciples when he saw the crowds leave them and go to Jesus. John rejoiced because he knew he was fulfilling the role that God gave him to do pointing people to Jesus Christ, that Jesus is now on the scene and people are going to him and he's so content and celebrates that the Savior is here, that his role and his job is almost over. And so we see a life purpose for us to remember. Rejoice and rest in the role that God has given you. Rejoice and rest in the role that God has given you. When you're always looking around, comparing yourself to other people, wishing that you were more like them, wishing that, that, that you had the gifts that they had, wishing that you had the platform they had, you know what it leads to? Jealousy, envy, rivalry, insecurity, bitterness. That's what it leads to. But if you recognize who you are, if you understand that God made you you on purpose, for a purpose, there's freedom. There's freedom. There's joy in doing what God called you to do, that you can can rest and celebrate the calling that God has given you. And so we need to rejoice and rest in the role that God has given us and realize, you know what, God's called us all to different roles. And the amazing thing about his church is he brings people together with different gifts and abilities so that they can use those gifts and abilities to fulfill those specific roles 
And if we were all the same, it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good at all. And so John shares, John shares this, this uh, purpose, a uh, life's purpose. And finally, he, he shares a plan for life. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. John clearly sees himself, and he clearly sees Jesus, and he simply says, he's greater than me. He's greater than me. Some claim that these are the greatest, most powerful words that a human being has ever said. The responsibility of living a a life of humble service, service to the Savior seemed to direct every aspect of John's life. And so he could say he must increase. Increase talks about the growth of Jesus' uh, authority and and his ministry and how the followers were going after Jesus. And and I must decrease talks about John and his ministry declining and the crowds getting smaller and smaller that are following him. And must talks about necessity. It's a divine necessity. John realized that, hey, Jesus needs to be preeminent, and I just need to lower myself and just be a simple servant to the master, to be a simple servant to the master. And the message is opposite everything we hear today from our world, right? Right? You need to increase your brand, You need to grow your platform. You need to get more followers. That's what the world tells us, but that's not what Jesus says. That's not what he says. He says you need to decrease. But let's be honest, right? We all like the spotlight. We all like the recognition. We all like uh, the praise and and the popularity. We crave that if we're really, really honest, right? And the, real, and, the, and the reason we do that, this self-exalting attitude, it's the heart of all sin. It's the heart of all sin. And if exalting oneself above all others is the heart of sin, then the highest form of godliness is to reject pride and embrace humility, to embrace humility. And that's exactly how John the Baptist lived his, lived his life, and we should do the same. Hudson Taylor was an amazing missionary to China. Um, God used him in amazing ways to really bring the gospel to China and, and had a huge impact in, in China. And during his 51 years of service, his China Inland Mission established 20 mission stations, brought 840 missionaries to the field, trained some 700 Chinese workers, raised $4 million by faith, developed a witnessing church of 125,000 people. It said that he led 35,000 people to Christ, and he baptized 50,000 believers. And one time he was speaking in Australia, and the person introducing him was going on and on, telling about how great Hudson Taylor was. He was a great missionary. He did great things and all these things. And finally, when he was done, Hudson stepped to the podium. He looked at the crowd, and he quietly said, Dear friends, I'm a little servant of an illustrious master. Hudson Taylor understood what John the Baptist was talking about here. He, Jesus, is greater than me. He is greater than me. Humility is the true key to greatness. 
It's recognizing that my sin is great, but my Savior is greater. It's recognizing that I can't save myself and I can't save anybody else, but I have the amazing privilege not only to know Jesus, but to live my life in service to him, to point people to him. John the Baptist was a picture of humility, and I think this is why Jesus said this about him in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Here in Matthew, Jesus says, up to this point in time in history, there was no greater person that walked the earth than John the Baptist. And why does Jesus say that? Because of his humbleness and character and his faithfulness and calling. He knew his role. He embraced it. He celebrated it. And he was all about pointing people to Jesus. Again, from Jack's blog, he said this, These verses encourage me to keep in mind where I am in all of this. Am I the bridegroom or am I a friend of the bridegroom? If I were, if I were the bridegroom, everything would be about me. If I were the friend of the bridegroom, my focus would be to point the world to the bridegroom. Ultimately, the key verse of the passage, the one, one of the most known and quoted verses in the Bible, is what we need to continue to allow to sanctify us. John 3.30. We must let him increase, but in order to do that, we must decrease. And as we decrease, he will be more evident in our lives because we will be seen less, which makes him seen more. So what really matters in this life? We've seen through the life and ministry of John the Baptist that humility shows when we make our lives a big fat sign pointing to Jesus. If our focus is on the growth of his if our focus is on the growth of his kingdom, then why should we focus on our status? Why should we be worried about the growth of our business or our name? It should all point to him for he is the bridegroom. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so here in verse 30, I think John gives us a plan for life. We have the daily responsibility of making he greater than me. The daily responsibility of making he greater than me, living a life of humble service and submission to our Savior. And as I was thinking about preaching uh, this week, um, uh, the last few weeks I've been been looking for some of those he versus he is greater than me uh, moments. And I'm so encouraged as your pastor to see so many of you living out some of those, uh, some of those moments. And, and I'm, I made a list. I had an ongoing list on my computer just kind of writing that down. Just uh, as I watched you guys kind of embody what John's life was. And, and I was so, so encouraged by that. I was at the hospital one, one, t- one day visiting one of, our, one of our church members. And their daughter comes up to me and says, you know, there's this there's this lady in your church that comes and visits my dad. And he loves that. He looks forward to that. And while I'm visiting with them that evening, they show up to see him. They got a babysitter to go visit him in the hospital. That's he greater than me right there. That's he greater than me. I've watched some of our families over the years adopt kids into their families, open up their arms and their lives and their hearts, and welcome these kids who need a place, need, need someone to love them. And, they, and, and it comes with challenges, but, but they embrace that, and they adopt. They adopt those kids, and they love those kids, and they point them to Jesus. 
I've watched um, uh, one of our members, uh, uh, loved one, passed away uh, recently, and, and I watched someone in their trail group get off work early and come to the funeral just to support, just to support their friend, that person that they're in trail group with. I was told a story about Upward, and one of our Upward refs had walking pneumonia, but they showed up to ref the Upward games because he's greater than me. He's greater than me. And then there's story after story after story that I could go into. I, I watched uh, a few of our youth leaders stay after uh, our, our weekly gathering was over, surrounding a student, loving on them and hugging them and praying for them as going through a difficult time. That's he greater than me. I watched eight of our adults last weekend stay up all night. Who knows why? Taking 56 kids to an all-nighter, and one of those kids invited their friend who didn't know Jesus, and he put his faith and trust in Jesus. It's a he is greater than me moment. They could have been home sleeping, but they weren't. And I'm so encouraged and so challenged by, as I look and as I watch uh, our, our church family live this principle out. But the challenge for me is like, it's not just a moment. Like John and Jesus are calling us to live this out consistently in our lives. And so we're going to leave here this morning. We're going to walk out these doors and we have a new week ahead of us. And so the question for us that, that we need to answer as we wake up every morning is, what am I going to do with my day? Is it all going to be all about me, or, or am I going to be focused on making Jesus greater than me, looking for the opportunities that he gives me to point people to him? And I don't know about you, but that's a big challenge. That's a challenge that I can't do in and of myself. I need his help. We need his help. But that's my prayer, that we would be a church that lives this out consistently, that we would be like John the Baptist, pointing people to the Savior. And then we'd make our lives all about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity that we have just to, to look into your word. I thank you for this, this great passage of scripture. I thank you for John the Baptist's life and his example, and, and, and it's challenging. Lord, in, in my own heart, I am selfish. I want what I want. I want to do what I want, and my time is my time, and, and, and yet, Lord... We know that it's not, that you called us to a life greater than that, that you called us to live a, a, a he is greater than me kind of lifestyle. And so, Lord, uh, this week as we go from here, where, may we be grateful people recognizing everything we have is a gift from you. And may we respond in our gratefulness by, by living our lives in a way that point people to you like John did. May we be so focused on being this great big sign, like, like Jack's blog said, pointing people to you. We need your help. We need your strength. We need your reminders. We can't do it on our own. In Jesus' name, amen.